It's do or die time in the primary. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and ace reporter, Houston Chronicle uh, reporter Jeremy Wallace is here as always. And Jeremy, we'll get to the, you know, the whole thing happening with the primary in just a second. I was asked about uh, on Fox 7 in Austin this morning, I was asked about uh, what my word would be for this week. And I just said exhaustion. Anyone yeah. who is working on all of these uh, stories about the primary and all the people who are actually campaigning, folks who are volunteering, block walkers, people who are living through a mini ice storm for a couple of days in Texas, everybody's just very tired, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. We can't get to Tuesday fast enough, right? You know, just get get to the end of this thing. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of miles chewed up between now and Tuesday when we finally get these votes done. We'll get to the primary, uh, but I want to at least mention at first here uh, something that's for sure uh, in all likelihood going to color the rest of the election all year, uh, and that's the fact that Russia has now invaded Ukraine. And look, there's plenty of national coverage of this, both in the Houston Chronicle and in your national uh, news outlets, whatever your favorite one is, or your favorite one to hate watch. You know, some, some people either watch MSNBC or Fox just to, to hate what they're seeing and complain about it. Um, but I do think that in this environment, it's worth noting that Texas Republicans and Republicans elsewhere have broken with President Trump in the way that this is being talked about. The former president said that with Putin going into Russia, and of course you see the heartbreaking images coming out of that region right now, uh, Jeremy, you got the tanks rolling in. Um, civilians are being, uh, you know, confronted uh, with uh, Russian aggression. Uh, and while that's happening, former President Trump was on a, a radio talk show, the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show. That's the uh, duo that uh, on many stations took over the Rush Limbaugh time slot for the, the late uh, conservative host. This is what Trump told them about Putin and the way he's behaving right now in Eastern Europe. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. He's smart. He's savvy. He also called uh, Putin a genius. And I didn't see Republicans say that they disagreed with uh, Trump, although uh, I think some Republicans who are at uh, the CPAC conference, where are they doing that? Is that in Florida, Jeremy? Yeah, Is that in up, Orlando? over in Florida this time. I, I think it was Josh Hawley, one of the uh, Republican senators who's sort of in the Ted Cruz mold. He was asked about it, uh, and he dismissed that immediately, and he shifted to the kind of rhetoric that I also heard and uh, read on Twitter from Governor Abbott from Senator uh, John Cornyn, uh, and even from Senator Cruz. Here's what Abbott said on Twitter about this invasion by Russia. He said, quote, The state of Texas stands with the people of Ukraine in their fight for sovereignty. May God bless them and keep them safe. Senator Cornyn had a statement where he said that autocracies in China and Iran will be emboldened if this is allowed to stand. Right? Doesn't sound like anything like, you know, this is a genius move by Putin or that he's super savvy or anything like that. And even Senator Cruz, who has been, of course, very uh, you know hesitant to do anything that's outside the Trump mold uh, over the last couple of years, here's what he tweeted. 
Quote, following news of Putin's further invasion of Ukraine, I am uh, angry and concerned. The U.S. will stand with our Ukrainian allies, continue to provide them with arms to defend themselves and work to counter Putin and hold accountable these responsible or those responsible for this aggression. Nothing like this guy is savvy. Nothing like this guy is a genius. This sounds more like Republican classic to me. This sounds more like the language of Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush, right? When we're talking about uh, the nation of Russia, the, you know, what's left of the evil empire, Jeremy. Yeah, it's like, it's, well, you don't have to go that far back. Anything pre-2016 Republican Party, that's what this sounds like. You know, there's yeah. one, you know, it's been a long, you know, a uh, concern of a lot of Republicans that the Cold War, although uh, many thought it was dead, uh, has been, you know, going on in the back channels, you know, yeah. for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've spoken to many members of Congress who have traveled to Russia and mm -hmm. say the intensity of the Cold War kind of really feels like it's, you know, back in the mid-1980s. You mm -hmm. know, that's where they feel like, you know, it's like, and so you kind of get the sense that, you know, you know we're all kind of like back in that mode now, you know, and Trump for some reason is acting like, for some, you know, I don't, I don't really understand what he's saying and how, particularly the Republican hawks that we mm -hmm. have, you know, heard on TV for decades, you know, how are they jiving this with, you know, the view of like most Americans right now? Well, yeah. And I, I think it uh, is just emblematic of the way that Trump's entrance into national politics and prominence and being the president of the Republican nominee and, and all that, it really turns a lot of things upside down. And it did on many issues. Uh, but on most of those issues, most Republicans were willing to go along with it. But not on this, right? They, yeah. they are taking a completely different stance. Uh, and and look, uh, it's not to say that you won't hear Republicans bad mouthing Biden and the decisions that he makes about this. You can expect that. Yes. But I do think that it's a and you know you'll, you can expect that throughout the year uh, that will uh, apply to the economic consequences of all this. And whether we actually you know have troops committed there, if if that ends up happening for right now, uh, President Biden is saying, look, we're putting uh, you know sanctions in place. Uh, you know, Western nations uh, are moving to try to check uh, Russian aggression through uh, strong sanctions. But we have already seen where there are some countries. It was just reported this morning that want to be you know even even if there are economic sanctions, they want to be able to still do business with Russia. For example, uh, India was taking a look at the way they could continue to do business. So this is going to be a developing situation, and we'll have to keep an eye on it. Now, I mentioned Cruz at CPAC. <laughs> he says the Democrats are about to get their lunch eaten in this election. Change is coming. It is powerful. You want to know how powerful? Find me one person on planet Earth who doesn't know what let's go Brandon means. Now, of course, our listeners know exactly what let's go Brandon means. He said, this is not just happening in Republican states. How many of you saw at the New England Patriots game in Boston, the entire crowd chanting, let's go Brandon. That is powerful. A wave is coming. We are taking our country back. We are standing up to power. We are defending liberty. We are defending the Constitution. We are defending the Bill of Rights. And together, we will save this great nation. God bless you. 
Senator Cruz not on decaf at uh, CPAC, Jeremy. And uh, look, he's he's using such hyperbolic language. It is so over the top to describe what usually happens anyway in a midterm election, right? It's the party that yeah. is out of power gets back in. Yeah, exactly. And he sounds like uh, a, a guy talking about taking our country back again. You know, I just can't. How do you separate the fact that, you know, Ted Cruz has been in office <laughs> for most of this time that he's trying to take back, I guess. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and we know that one, of the, you know, like you said, one of the things you can count on, one of the most, you know, biggest certainties in all of American politics is that the, the you know, president's party will lose seats in a midterm election. Oh, yeah. You know, in his first election, for sure. Yeah. It's like it almost always happens. The only exceptions have been two you know, in the entire existence of our country. And that is, you know, one was George W. Bush, you know, after 9-11, you know, obviously. So yeah, short of a massive war or an attack on the country, you know, you're typically going to see a big drop off and, you know, the president's party. Well, yeah. And it, that's part of why I started with this whole deal with Ukraine, right? I mean, we could be in one of those rally around the flag, rally around the president kind of situations, Later yeah. in the year, don't don't discount that. Um, it, one of the things that uh, we saw uh, reports out of Washington in the last uh, forty eight hours was rare bipartisan agreement, right? That we need to you know take a hard stance against Russia and put some of these uh, these sanctions in place. Uh, by the way, dear listener, I'm still getting past my allergies and my my voice is uh, suffering a little bit for it, uh, but I'm not all hopped up on allergy medication anymore. So maybe I'm yeah. making a little more sense, even if my Throat is a little scratchy. Now, you saw, Jeremy, here in Texas that uh, the governor uh, said he agreed with Attorney General Ken Paxton that gender-affirming care for transgender children, that it amounts to child abuse, right? And so now there's yep. concern among uh, some activists and others who would say that uh, the state is gearing up to take these children away from their parents, um, that, uh, that you do have, uh, the AG weighing in and the timing of his, uh, opinion, by the way, was interesting. Uh, you know, that some conservative lawmakers had asked for an official opinion from the attorney general about whether gender affirming care is child abuse. And he has 180 days to answer that. And I think he answered it one day before that, you know, as far as if, and, and there were those who thought, well, this is very well timed for him in his reelection bid to be coming out and saying something that a lot of these conservative activists would agree with. Um, I know that there are uh, different groups in Austin and other parts of the state that are gearing up to try to, as they put it, protect these children. And they said it was a very scary time for some of these families. That announcement from Paxton and Abbott came right around the same time that you may have seen Governor Abbott uh, float the idea of potential pardons for police officers who were indicted in Travis County in connection with the way they handled the George Floyd protests. Yep. And you remember that, I mean, we had what, more than a dozen. We had a lot of people uh, who were uh, shot with these beanbag rounds, uh, which are supposed to be non-lethal, but that doesn't mean they don't really hurt. I mean, we had people with apparently with cracked skulls and cracked jaws. I mean, this is the, the, the you know, they're not using when they say beanbag, <laughs> They're not using the beanbag you're thinking of, right? I mean, this is, seri this is serious stuff. Um, and the fact is that you now have conservative activists who would like to be able to, who would like to see uh, those police officers just be completely let off the hook. Now, on the other side, some folks will say, "Hey, you have a, a prosecutor in Austin who is very progressive, 
you have not seen this many officers indicted at once. It was 19 officers uh, in total uh, who were indicted in connection with this. But all of this created these headlines, Jeremy. I'm outlining all this together for a reason. Transgender children, uh, that's child abuse. And those kids might be taken from their families. That's the position of the uh, state of Texas, uh, you know, by the governor and the attorney general. Pardoning the police for going after protesters who are largely people of color, right? These are the stories that the governor wants out there right around the time of the election and right around the same time that there was some explosive testimony happening in a courtroom in Houston. It had to do with the winter weather disaster last February. What was said, this is fascinating, and I first saw it uh, from the Houston Chronicle, I believe uh, the reporter is James Osborne, yep. who's oh, there in... Yeah, uh, Mm-hmm. Following yeah, along with that. Words are a Washington guy who knows everything about fuels and the yeah. energy sector. Well, the former head of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, Bill Magnus, who had been the, the CEO there until the winter disaster, and this is somebody who has made a career in electricity in the energy sector uh, and is a real expert in it. But of course, he was run off after the winter storm disaster, as was you know members of the ERCOT board and all of that. Magnus, under oath, said that it was Governor Abbott who ordered ERCOT to keep electricity prices as high as possible for that five-day period during the winter storm last February. This is the way it was covered on KHAU television in Houston. During the winter storm last year, power prices skyrocketed at times as high as $9,000 per megawatt hour. Now the Houston Chronicle is reporting the former ERCOT CEO says the order to raise the prices came straight from the governor himself. Now why is this important? Well, for a few reasons. Number one, that is not what the governor's office said at the time. Remember, the spokesman right. for the governor said that the governor, quote, was not involved in any way, close quote, and not involved at all in keeping the price of a commodity a little bit higher than it usually is. And when I'm saying that, it's sort of uh, dripping with irony. Look, we're talking about a storm where hundreds of people died, right? Yep. And the price of a kilowatt hour of electricity in the Texas market, I think averages around 30 bucks, something like that, right? It's, it fluctuates some, but that's a normal price. During that winter storm, it was at $9,000 per unit, okay? So the, the astronomical. And that price increase was what allowed for certain companies to make off, a, you know, their critics have said, to make off like bandits with money, bag, bags of money in the middle of the night while people were freezing to death all over Texas. And you say freezing to death, literally freezing to death in yeah. some places, which of course we've covered here. And that's led to a lot of outrage among some people. And it's a pretty potent uh, attack against the governor and has been the main line of attack from Beto O'Rourke, who's challenging uh, Abbott uh, this fall, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is this is the the debate at this point. You know, for the mm -hmm. last you know two months, for sure, uh, Beto O'Rourke has made it very clear that he is going to hold Abbott accountable for everything that happened with the electricity grid. Of course, you know, people have heard you know us talk about this on on you know the show before. Uh, Abbott is, is insisting that he's fixed the problems that were uh, that happened uh, last year and that we uh, the grid is stronger than it's ever been but it doesn't take away 
like what you mentioned that you know we literally lost hundreds of texans you know because of that storm that didn't even begin to address the 80 billion dollars plus in economic damages that everybody kind of ended up you know feeling you know that's not just through you know higher electric bills but that's also through you know damage to people's pipes and mm-hmm. you know homes and you know all the costs that came with like losing power for days on end so yeah this thing isn't going anywhere and you know just expect for nine months after this primary, this is what we're going to hear back and forth for nine straight months. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, Abbott and O'Rourke have been going around the state, getting people fired up to vote in this primary that's coming up on Tuesday. As we record here on Friday, it's the last day of early voting, and the turnout has just been abysmal, Jeremy. People just are not showing up in this primary at all. For us, it's the main event Right. I mean, right now, this is the election that's happening. And as I have said many times, and people will get sick of me saying it, it's the election of consequence in Texas. This is when all the decisions are made. It's made by almost no one. And the fact that it's made by almost no one is underscored by what the numbers look like right now. Yeah, absolutely. Going into Friday, we were sitting at 8% turnout for the entire state. Uh, That's about 1.2 million people out of 17 million registered voters have actually weighed in on, like you mentioned, the most consequent. This is the race that will decide so many offices in Texas. Mm -hmm. And yet it's really going to be 1.2 million people that are mostly deciding this at this point. So yeah, yeah, really terrible turn, but we expected it was going to be terrible. Right. It's like, but boy, it's still hard to swallow when you see Like I thought maybe we hit, could hit 17%, uh you know, like that sounds like a pipe dream at this point. There's no way we're hitting 17%. So I wonder if there is a shift happening in Texas where maybe more of the attention will be on the November election, because look, we have had uh, a shift toward that in this state, right? That we've had much bigger turnout than had traditionally been seen in past cycles in the November election. Democrats still have not been able to win one of those, but they've certainly increased their numbers. As you have pointed out, uh, they've made a concerted effort to register more people to vote, you know, record registrations now in Texas. Um, But I do also think that for the primary, there's a few reasons people might be uh, you know, not willing to participate or not care about it at all. I do think that there are a lot of folks in this state, and this is anecdotal, but I'm sure there's data to back this up as well. Um, a lot of people who feel that their vote just doesn't matter. And that is not just Democrats. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats who feel that way because they never win, right? It's like they, they, they're, they get close. And in the past few cycles, it, it had been close, but they don't win. In fact, they would say, hey, we are closing the gap at the presidential level. You know, it had always been a double-digit race, but, you know, when you lose by six, you still lost, right? So it's, it, it doesn't pump you up when you lose. Um, on the Republican side, though, I wonder if there is something to the idea that if former President Trump, who Republican voters listen to, as, you know, as evidenced all through, you know, this, this era of politics, um, they listen to him and he keeps saying, that the election was stolen, that their votes don't matter. And I was thinking about the way that the Democrats were able to get over the finish line in Georgia, where they won two Senate seats in a place where previously people would have thought that could not happen for decades, right? Um, And part of what was going on there was President Trump and his supporters telling Republicans to not vote until things that had happened in their estimation, things that had happened in the November election were settled out. 
and figured out, right, and, and audited and all of that. Um, and so when you have former President Trump saying, your vote doesn't matter, and you've got Democrats who kind of feel like their vote doesn't matter because this is Texas and they never win the election, of course you're going to have a lot of very disinterested people, Jeremy. And then add on top of that that we have had some confusion with the new rules for voting, right? Yep. And I've said this before, Democrats get upset with me, but I do think there's also a little bit of suppressing their own vote by always telling people, telling Democrats, telling uh, you know voters of color and others that, that it's so hard to vote. And then I do think there are some people, and look, they're not wrong to point out that there are new rules in place. I'm not saying that. But if, if your message is constantly to say that this thing is so hard to do, you will have a lot of people say, well, you know, screw it. I'm not even going to try. Well, and, and and let's add one other big obvious factor in this is that you have two you know, at the top of the ticket. You have a governor's race that doesn't feel super competitive to a lot of folks. Right. Uh, you know, look, there are definitely challengers to both, you know, Greg Abbott on the Republican side and, you know, the better work on the Democratic side. But nobody has quite you know the financial support and and it's interesting even listening to Abbott and you know Beto O'Rourke they're on a get out the vote rally week essentially they've yeah. been going everywhere trying to rally voters but you know one thing they never talk about the primary nobody ever talks about their primary opponents or trying to distinguish themselves about the other primary they want you to come out and vote uh, but they're more worried about what's happening in November that's what they're saying and for and for them what this primary becomes is you know this attempt to try to get people to come out to vote in a primary cycle in which they feel like they're winning already right uh, it, but it's all part of a dress rehearsal for them for the campaigns mm -hmm. you know their mission right now is to try to reach out to as many voters and supporters as possible and mobilize them as kind of a network in preparation for what is going to be an outrageously competitive uh 2022 gubernatorial cycle for us we're going to have well, competition for the governor's race that's going to mm -hmm. feel much like what we all felt like when bush versus ann richards was happening you know back in 1994. it's going to be that kind of a hot race for nine straight months and so all that energy it was funny kind of listening to uh beto work was down in mcallen uh last weekend and he's telling his supporters we got to knock on every door we got to get every voter out he's like shouting at the crowd like they <laughs> were on the brink of losing despite the poll showing that he had 90 percent of the vote <laughs> like probably right. going into this primary abbott's been the same way abbott like literally at one of the events in i think it was in el paso he ends up telling the crowd it's like you know liberty itself is on the ballot you know, we got to get out to vote. <laughs> you know, it's just like, so you have a lot of like energy from them trying to get their people to vote in a mm -hmm. primary in which both are rarely, it should blow out their opponents, you know, short yeah. of something disastrous happening. Right. Both of them um, in perfect position uh, for their uh, primaries. Like you said, it doesn't even matter. It's a, as I've been calling it, a spirited but not necessarily competitive primary uh, yeah. and a bruising general election on the way. I wonder if there is anything to the uh, to the idea that uh, maybe what they're doing is is testing out uh, you know, both Abbott and, and Beto, whether they're testing out if they can move that needle at all, you know, looking at the yeah. low turnout numbers. And then figuring out if they can boost it up a little by, you know, using this really hyperbolic language, which kind of puts them both, um, you know, in a class with Senator Cruz. You heard him screaming about how, uh, yeah. you know, we've got to take the power back from the Democrats. Um, did you see the debate among the attorney general candidates uh, minus one of them uh, last night, 
Jeremy? I, I read the coverage in the Houston Chronicle, but I didn't actually watch it. Well, I watched it so you didn't have to. Um, I watched most of it. And I actually, I didn't watch it last night. I watched it this morning over coffee, which I thought was a much more pleasant way to do it. Um, last night, I was instead having a nice dinner in El Paso. It was fantastic. That was the way to spend the evening, not with these folks. So I noticed this, Jeremy. First thing is that Bush is suddenly spending a bunch of money to attack Eva Guzman, the former Supreme Court justice. And you've probably seen some of his commercials. Uh, you know, he's, I mean, more than a debate for one night, that's not going to move the needle. More than that is the, the paid spending or the yeah. paid advertising. What are these guys doing? What are they putting on TV? And these ads are running in Houston. They're running in DFW. And did you know that Ava Guzman is probably one of the most liberal people who's ever walked the earth? That's the way... <laughs> That's the way she's being portrayed, which is, of course, ridiculous. Is a pretty conservative person was was appointed by uh, to the to the to different uh, judicial uh, positions by uh, Governor Perry, and you know who is no liberal, and um, serves on the Texas Supreme Court, which I it's hard for me to think of anything that they have done that anybody before the last 72 hours or so has, has, you know, in a big way accused them of being liberals. So I guess if she's liberal, all of those, I mean, she and the other Supreme court justices usually agree about everything. Sometimes yeah. there's a dissent, but usually they agree about everything. They're all Republicans. But if you listen to the Bush ad, you would think that Ava Guzman is AOC. Eva Guzman was the most liberal judge on the Texas Supreme Court. She spent our tax dollars on a woke critical race theory summit that claimed our justice system is racially biased and called for mandatory CRT training for every police officer in the state. And to indoctrinate kids in school, Guzman wants to give Texas children an app that tells them about their racial bias. Eva Guzman, liberal, woke, wrong. Like why, why did they, why I, did they stress app in that like that was the problem? <laughs> well, so when you watch the ad, when you watch the ad, um, when it's when when you get to that part, when when the announcer says that that Eva Guzman wants to give the kids an app that ah! will an, an app ah, <laughs> what you see is a kid on the screen when the word app hits like that, and it does hit you it hits you a little different than the other words in there. When, when, when the announcer says that, the, that uh, Guzman's going to give them an app, what you see is a kid holding a cell phone, and on the screen of the cell phone, it says, the, the words on the screen read, you are very racist. Okay. <laughs> Can't make this up. Um, I remember years ago, in 2012, I think it was, it was either in 2012 or 2014, uh, then Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst was running some pretty silly ads against i think this was against dan patrick uh in 2014 and i remember thinking man this ad is just stupid and i asked my publisher at quorum report harvey kronberg i asked him should we post this it seems pretty stupid you know should we put this where the readers can see it and he said especially because it's stupid <laughs> and so <laughs> so we're giving you a taste of that right now dear listener um there was also this ad from bush and and look all of most of that is how do you even start to fact check that? I, I don't think Eva Guzman wants to give kids an app on their phone that's going to tell them that they are, quote, very racist. This is quite a stretch. It's unbelievable. 
And how would she even be in charge of that if she was the attorney general of Texas? I don't really know. But this is also a race where uh, George P. Bush has been attacking uh, her as someone who doesn't want to build the wall either. Remember, he was uh, riding his ATV along the wall. And uh, he says that she is against it. George P. Bush. He'll finish the wall. And he's endorsed by the National Border Patrol Council. Eva Guzman? Guzman opposes George P. Bush's plan to finish Trump's wall, calling it a ploy. I might have called him George W. Bush earlier. If I did, I apologize to the whole Bush family. Um, Guzman not happy about this, uh, Jeremy. So during the debate, she unleashes on him. This was a debate hosted by Spectrum News. And uh, our friend uh, Christian Flores, who is a reporter at CBS Austin, he put together a mashup of the things that uh, Guzman was saying in response to the things that Bush has been saying about her. George is entitled, and I'm sorry you're so mad that I'm running, George. I know you thought this was your job. George waited seven years before he decided the border was an urgent situation. It sounds like George is criticizing Ken for his own conduct at the last minute, filing a lawsuit for a photo op. Sounds like you're calling it a ploy, George. Waiting seven years to file a lawsuit to secure the border sure sounds like a photo op and not putting the interest of Texans first. Bush responded to her but he trained most of his political fire on ken paxton the incumbent who of course was not even there at the debate i'm the only candidate here tonight uh, that's actually won on behalf of the state of texas whether it's against the obama administration or the biden administration when it comes to the border i'm the only candidate endorsed by the national border patrol council she opposes the plan that was drafted by the union that represents the 19,000 agents that keep the watch. So that means she opposes either the agents or she's for open borders. That is not true. You could hear her say that. No, she either opposes the agents or she's for open borders. Wouldn't you be both of those things if you held the position he was accusing her of? I was trying to trying to figure that one out. Um, he also very carefully worded at the beginning of that statement. He said, I'm the only candidate who is here tonight who has won for people in court, you know, for one for Texans in court, of course, Paxton was not there. And he has had, you know, mixed results in court when he's been fighting the uh, Biden administration. Now, of course, we have not yet mentioned Louis Gohmert from Deep East Texas. And he was the one, I thought, Jeremy, who was the most focused on attacking Ken Paxton, the incumbent. We have an attorney general who, instead of investigating crime, is now charged with committing them. I think it's important to understand why Paxton is not here, why he hasn't come to any of our events. It's because he is under indictment for fraud. The motion to dismiss was denied. He's pending trial. He's been arrested. He's out on bond. And he has been under investigation by the FBI. I am trying to figure out what the real dynamic in this race is. You have George P. Bush swinging at Paxton and really swinging at uh, Guzman with those advertisements that you heard. One of those, I think, has a million dollars behind it that, 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 that uh, Paxton's now, or excuse me, that uh, George P. Bush is now spending against Guzman, trying to knock her down some. She's going after Bush a lot. I mean, she's she's attacking him in some of her, some of her advertising and on that stage. Gomert really focusing on Paxton. And I think throughout the entire race, at least as far as everything I've seen, 
Gohmert has remained the most laser-focused on Paxton. Remember when he first said he might run for attorney general, he was on uh, my friend Mark Davis's show in Dallas, where he was really blowing up Paxton for having a mistress and for these, you know, his dealings with a shady developer in Austin. And Gohmert was the one and has been the one, and I think still is the one, who's most uh, adamantly making this case that if Paxton's the nominee, then he gets indicted by the feds, which could happen, then that puts the seat, that puts the attorney general's office in danger of Republicans losing it to Democrats in the fall. Does that seem about right to you, Jeremy, that that's kind of what the dynamic is? And on top of that, I guess I have to add that, look, because Paxton has the Trump endorsement, again, none of that may matter. It may just be that Trump puts his arm around Paxton and Republican voters in this state say, that's good enough for me. Yeah, if we only we knew what the 700,000 or about almost 800,000 Republican voters who have already voted, what they're thinking, you know, I'd love to kind of get a sense as to what, like, where they're breaking on that race. My guess is that it's all over the map. You know, it's like, just like that debate, everybody's all over the map on this thing. You know, it's like they clearly, you know, who knows what their internal data is showing them about whatever you know, polling there is, who knows if any of that polling would be on mark at this point. You know, again, it's hard to poll something when it's this low of turnout and try to get right. a really good sampling of it. And so who knows? I think they're all kind of going into Tuesday kind of blind. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, Paxson might get over 50% and knock the whole thing out. You know, it's like, and he moves on to the general. Uh, or like maybe he gets held under 50%. And who knows which one of these candidates becomes mm-hmm. the true rival you know, to packs in a runoff, I think it's which really will have di- even lower turnout. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think it's really difficult. I, I know there are people listening to this and some will think that, oh, you know, Bush is best position to be in the runoff with Paxton or Guzman is, most, is best position. Or I, I've heard from people who think that it's Gomert. And, and all of the people who would say those things have made decent cases to me about why that person might be in the runoff. So I can't get my mind around it. But, you know, something you said makes me think not just about this race. But about races all over the state for uh, Texas Senate, uh, for Texas House in particular, there are a lot of candidates who think they're in decent position right now, Jeremy, or they thought that a week ago. They might have had an internal poll that says, hey, you know, we're doing pretty good. We're seven points ahead or eight points ahead of our, uh, you know, of our opponent. And you can always question how good the polling is in these in these races. It's, it's extremely difficult to poll and understand what's happening in one of these races when the turnout is so low. When you go as a pollster and reach out to the people who you're trying to figure out their opinion, you are the one initiating the interaction, right? So you're trying to gauge you're trying to gauge the attitudes of people. The election works in the opposite direction. The voter has to go do it, right? The voter has to engage. They have to go to the polls. And so when you have such low turnout, let's say that you really did have a poll that was accurate and showed that you were seven points ahead. It, when the turnout is lower, it takes a lower number of people to go the opposite way to change that percentage a lot, right? Yeah. And so when and so when you have low turnout, you know, for all the reasons we described, plus there were campaigns in Dallas-Fort Worth area and some in Austin that lost out on probably two full days of being able to block walk and greet people at the polls. And, and in some places, people couldn't go vote at all because polling locations were shut down because of icy streets. They lost out on some of the early voting. And I don't think you're going to see, we'll, you know, we'll all watch it, not a prediction. I don't know that you're going to see some huge surge of voters on Tuesday that that's really going to happen because people are making up for lost time. Um, because there was no 
urgency before the two days of icy streets, right? And so, yeah. and, there's no and presidential race in here. No. There's no Senate race in here. It's it's really just like the governor's race and the attorney general's race that's going to drive all the turnout. And how right. much can that really drive based on the dynamics we just kind of rolled out? Yeah, I'll give you one example. In Brazos County, where I was a few days ago, Bryan College Station, um, I talked to a, a person who was camp- volunteering for a campaign. And, the, and granted, this was on a Sunday. But to give you a sense, uh, they had stood at that polling location for three hours and had talked to four people. Yeah. And that four people who had come in to vote, that is happening all over Texas. One last thing before we head out here. Before we, before we put a bow on this, the last podcast before the, the big election, there was one question asked during the debate last night that I love the responses. <laughs> All the candidates were asked at once by uh, reporter uh, Patrick Zvitek uh, whether Biden legitimately won the election. Because, of course, you know, the guy that we started the show with, President Trump, still says it was a rigged election. And as you have pointed out, Jeremy, that's the environment in which this GOP primary happens, right? We're talking about the, um, you know, this effort to delegitimize the elections because Trump says that it was it was stolen. And when the question is asked, to his credit, Commissioner George P. Bush raised his hand and was smiling. Instantly, he raised his hand. They said, just show of hands, who says that President Biden really won the election? Bush shot that hand up. Guzman sort of did. She she started to raise her hand. Then she looked at the other candidates and put her hand back down. Then she put her hand back up. And it kind of went, you could have, the way her hand was moving, you could have set it to music. <laughs> but but listen to the question and then um, the answers from the candidates. And all they had asked for, again, you'll hear it, all they had asked for was a show of hands. And then because the hands weren't shooting up quite fast enough for two of them, uh, they felt they needed to explain themselves. Before we move on to the next topic from Gromer, we just wanted to ask you on this same topic about the 2020 election. Can we get a, a quick show of hands? Do you believe Joe Biden won the 2020 election? Raise your hand for yes. I don't know whether he did or not. We have Commissioner Bush raised his hand and Justice Guzman raised her hand. It's undetermined from my perspective, but yes, I'm raising my hand. He's our president and he's our president. We need to look at what we do going forward. All right, that's the question. Let's call to No question about it. He is the legitimate president. So I will give them credit for uh, finding their way to saying that Biden is the legitimate president. All three of them did that. Here's one question that I would have, and I think it's an open question, Jeremy. If Ken Paxton had been there, what would he have done? Now, (laughs) I'm going to guess, and, you know, his folks can, his campaign can correct me if I'm not right. I'm going to guess he would not have raised his hand and left it at that. Because... because well, it's he worth note, is, it's yeah. worth noting he was at the Stop the Steal rally on January 6, 2021. So I'm thinking he already voted in that discussion back right. on January 6, 2021. <laughs> that is probably a good place to leave it. Dear listener, the next time we talk to you, this this blockbuster election that so many of you care so much about that you're willing to trek through the ice and snow to be able to go vote, it Oh, wait, it's the opposite. All right. When we talk to you again, we will have sorted out some of this. We will be on to whatever potential runoffs there are, and we will cover it all as it unfolds. Go right now on your phone. If you're listening to the show, 
whatever app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, if you're not subscribed, hit the subscribe button so you can hear the next amazing edition of this program without having to look for it. It'll just pop up on your phone. Give us the best rating that you can. Tell all your friends about it. Share it on social media. We appreciate it. We would also like it if you were a subscriber at quorumreport.com. Click subscriptions there, and you can do the same at houstonchronicle.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.